This is an FOU Studios podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to GXP, the Geek Experience Podcast. Let's level up with some GXP. I'm the showrunner, Peter the Geek. With me today, I have GMJC. Hey, hey, what's going on, world? Also, our local fantasy and Harry Potter aficionado, Brittles. Hey, what's up? All right, our guest for today is uh, actually very, very close to me. Uh, he's my cousin. Nick is an is a huge plant geek who's working on a uh, as a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Illinois. He teaches computer science and botany at Eureka College. He's done research with um, uh, genomes for chestnut genetics. He's wrote, he wrote a book in Waukesha, about the trees in Waukesha County. He is one of the best experts on plants and everything like that I know. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe I get to say Dr. Nicholas Labonte now, right? Yeah. All right. Welcome to the show, Nick. Welcome to the show. So, Nick. Thank you. Of course. Tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Uh, Well, yeah, as Peter mentioned, I'm Peter's cousin, I guess. uh, Well, my professional life revolves around uh, plants and plant genome sequencing and uh, plant breeding and plant genotype. A lot of things related to plants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do have my, my history. Uh, my history with plants goes back to when I was a kid too. And I mean, Peter can Peter can tell you there was one summer we started this goofy little business venture where we like dug up small trees from the woods <laughs> to their grandpa's house and tried to sell them. Yep. But, <laughs> you so, tried but, to sell uh, them? We tried to sell plant weeds from the woods. It was all right, great. Wait, I need to ask, who is your target audience <laughs> for selling the plants from the or the trees? <laughs> just people just people driving down the road. Anyone. <laughs> oh, that's we, hilarious. Up, we were gonna set it up like a lemonade stand. Yeah. How but big we, were we these never... trees? Um, they were tiny. They were very small. They were yeah, tiny. they were. You guys like have a wagon and like a backhoe, and you guys are like hauling these trees through the front yard. I mean, you're assuming a larger volume than I think actually happened, Brittany. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back on topic, Nick. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> we move on from this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, I've I've loved Star Wars and. Uh, Lord of the Rings for a long time. I mean, I saw the Lord of the Rings theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother and I, our favorite thing to watch when we were kids was uh, a VHS tape that my dad made called Star Wars Greatest Hits. That was the original. It was the original Star Wars trilogy with uh, the scary parts taken out, so like kindergartners <laughs> could watch it. Don't you remember it, Peter? Yes. Yeah, I, I like must have. Yeah, because yeah, the scare. So, uh, that's right. The Han, Han and Greedo was taken out of it because it was too scary. Yeah, yeah, because Greedo dies. Yeah. You know, anytime where somebody dies, yes. that would get taken out. So the narrative was kind of confusing, but as kids, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't care about the narrative. We just cared about you know the spaceship mm-hmm. and seeing Chewbacca and all. Yeah, you know, all sure. The, I had for. The, I had completely forgotten about that, Nick. <laughs> completely yeah. forgotten. All right. It's a good intergenerational geek thing. You know? Oh, yeah. My, my dad felt that he needed to make it for us uh, to have a, a... I mean, Star Wars is pretty kid-friendly to begin with. I mean, especially, Well, it is now, now that it's Disney. <laughs> yeah, it is now. Yeah. But, uh... Yeah, but yeah. so so I, we watched that a lot, and uh, I well, I mentioned to Peter when we were talking about the lead up to this. We mm-hmm. one Star Wars computer game we had was Gungan Frontier. My brother and I spent a long time playing uh, mm-hmm. other old Star Wars computer games. We ne- we didn't really have video game systems. Yeah, we had like, we would play we would play them on like desktop computers. I forget. Oh, what was the name? You guys had Dark, Dark Forces. Force. Dark yeah. Forces. 
Dark, okay, I, I only just discovered Dark Forces about a year ago, and that series, it leading all the way up until like Jedi Knight and Jedi Academy, or yeah. rather Jedi Academy, yeah. that, that series is highly underrated. It, it is. It was really good. For even now, I'm enjoying it. Like when I when I'm a console gamer playing like the latest AAA hits, yeah. I love those games. Great, yeah, They're no, so well made. I, I we we're, we've actually started to bridge into this right now. We need to make sure we actually label this what, what's happening right now because it's right about time. We need to geek out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so continuing the conversation, yeah, we had dark forces, but pod racing. At one point, oh, I played no. pod racing so much, my mom begged, like I was not allowed to even watch other people play that game. <laughs> now this is pod racing. <laughs> so bad. Uh, so good. That's funny. Yeah, I was I was talking to my brother Dan about that phenomenon. <laughs> uh, one of the last times we talked, like how well, I, oh, I saw him at Christmas, and I was. clarify it's gungan frontier right as right. In like the species you just said that that it's similar to the sims they made a sims like star wars game with gungans no, in it. No, no. oh okay <laughs> it's to i was about to panic yeah. <laughs> no it's no. It, it was like sim like uh like one of those sim park sim nature kind oh, of things. oh okay yeah right right right, right, right. And uh, like yeah, the yeah. the premise, I don't even remember the the whole premise. But you were building like an ecosystem on like some moon or some like I think it was I think it was the moon. I don't remember. And you were yeah, you were a Gungan like agent, and you had to populate this moon planet thing. It was yeah, so it was, ridiculous. Yeah, it was a funny game. Damn. It was yeah. Peter essentially got the gist of it right. Yeah. The 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 idea was that. The Gungans were like running out of natural resources on the moon or something. Yeah. So they're they're colonizing this moon that doesn't have any life on it. So you pick up after like the terraforming or whatever is taking place. So there's like an atmosphere that can support complex life, and you just introduce. You have like this library of animals, and you have a limited number that you can introduce. Uh, like you know, kind of like SimCity, certain things cost more than others. Right, right. And then you, and you have to and there's a Gungan city there too, and you have to balance how many animals or trees the city harvests over time. So it was kind of an interesting game. I mean, I, I think my, I think I have to say, I think my cities never flourished. I was way more interested in having a lot of animals. I, I have to <laughs> hand it to them, though, that, I mean, when did this game come out? 2001, oh, maybe? Like, what, what, episode one came out in 99, right? Yeah. Yeah, immediate, it was immediately after the Phantom So, So out. just a point of order for the podcast, Brittles today is our fact checker. She's going to be looking up some information that we... If oh, we if we're trying great. to recall things, yeah. she's got a laptop set up. So, uh, Brittles, were you able to find Gungan Frontiers release date? She's looking it up right now. Oh, okay. She's she's doing right. some typing. Yeah, Gung. Oh, gosh, yeah. That it's it's just amazing to me that. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, JC. Really quickly, the Malpers. Do you remember the Malpers? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just gonna. I was just gonna go into it though. <laughs> Like with a lot of video games, our favorite thing was to sort of use the like create a creature function and just yep. mess with mess with it to try to like make creatures that will like break the game basically. Yeah. And one of them was what Peter described was the Mauper, which was I'm, I'm taking it this is something fun. of your own creation. Oh right? God, it was beautiful. Please, Nick, please keep going. It was beautiful. <laughs> it was it was a it was a two foot tall biped with no arms <laughs> and like this had a long tube mouth and eye stalks. And it was like a bright, like key lime green. Oh god. A uniformly bright green. It was it was an eyesore, <laughs> it frankly. Was awful. And it had so we maxed out we maxed out the reproductive rate. And <laughs> so the it would just spread everywhere. So oh. The thing would just spawn like like nobody's <laughs> business. And the worst part of it was uh, it only ate 
very large animals. No. And so it's a carnivore. <laughs> it's two feet tall with no arms. So funny. <laughs> so if so if you've taken like an ecology class, you know this isn't going to work because <laughs> large animals need to consume a lot of resources, so there aren't as many of them. So a carnivore that only eats large animals and reproduces really quickly, you're going to have a problem. So what would happen is we'd make these ecosystems, and then like after a while, you'd like introduce the paupers. Oh, and no. within about within about five minutes, the planet would just be. Very nice vegetation, but like littered with the bones of animals that like swarm. That like is hungry, great. It's like the the, the plague the upon your ecosystem. <laughs> 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 I I was I was trying to say like just for for uh, for a game that came out so long ago, it really took it in a bold direction. So to have so many options for a player to like design and. Uh, create their own environment. I mean, all the RTSs from that time, the the real time strategy games, were in a similar sense. They like you had to build and support different life forms and foundations and this and that. But yeah. but but a Star Wars IP, you would <laughs> never think that Lucasfilm <laughs> would allow their games to go into like an RTS type thing. It wasn't RTS though. It, okay, it was again. It was like a sim sim nature kind of thing. Oh, so like right, when right. you're building the like when you're building the Sakala, like it was ridiculously well faceted actually. Like the, the when I was reflecting on it, like you there were I mean there were some plant like um, one of the plants bubble uh, bubble no bubble ward is what you made with it. Um, I don't remember what it was called, but there was a plant that it spawned seeds that blew blew down wind or something. Sure. And so eventually over time, it would just die out because it would go off of the map because all the seeds just disappeared. But there were so many plants and they had tons of different critters for you to develop. And like, yeah, you could create like a full blown like really cool ecosystem yeah, a world yeah and then and then you're building you, it on a moon yeah right? and then you yeah. could harvest i mean it wasn't really a big full moon it was really <laughs> yeah it was an interesting game yeah the, the plants were kind of tricky because there were like a, there were like five of the five of the plants or something mm -hmm. could be used by the gungans to make their like bubble building yeah water. so you had to keep a lot of those plants around or the gungans would like Page you like angrily. Yes, the that's the Would pop up in the bottom corner of the screen, and he would be like, "Oh, we need more of the bubble stuff. What <laughs> building? Like, what's up?" And and you're like watching as your like precious <laughs> bubble trees are getting eaten by the animal. Oh no! <laughs> I forgot about that. But so because so yeah, because they would also complain to be like, "We want a new uh, um uh, bongo station. We need oh so you have to like." Give them the resources for a fucking bongo station. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I don't know if you guys ever played this game. I had an experience with a game called Pharaoh. I didn't play Sims very much, okay. um, but I had this game called Pharaoh, and it was essentially world building in ancient Egypt. And it, I feel like all games followed this pattern where it became less about you building and supporting your environment and more about managing the expectations of your inhabitants <laughs> who got mad at you. Because all I remember was a priest who would go around my town and I'd, if I click on him, I could get like a report of how the townspeople are feeling about things. Right. Like, Do I need to develop more clay or have more water roots? And he would just like angrily look at me and go, this city is adequate. But we need more festivals. Right, right. What? Fuck you, man! I don't have the money, right? I'm trying to get the mortuary up. Screw you with your festivals. I ran into that with Sim City all the time. Yeah. Because with Sim City, there was like SAFE, like the Sims against. Um, uh, some I uh, it was it, like there were all kinds of like factions of people would like you know come to you like we need to make sure we have more fire alarms or right something like that and you're like right. okay great and then <laughs> it's just about managing the expectations well, of yes this dumb populace I remember figuring out at one point it was the dirtiest thing I've ever done like to theoretical people because tax season always hit at the end of end of the year and so I would have my taxes super low most of the year business would thrive, people would move in, and then on December 20th, I would jack the taxes up as high as possible. I would get a ton of money at the new year and immediately lower them again. You're Donald Trump. It was so bad. No one ever put Peter in government, please. No one ever vote for him. We know what he would do. 
Mm. <laughs> I mean, kind of, yeah. So, so um, anyway, back to your expertise. Um, so, Peter, you, you had wanted to talk a lot about, like, biodiversity in a lot of the science fiction stuff that we see or in the fantasy stuff that we right, see. Right, 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 right. Uh, in different games and, uh, and IPs in general. Mm -hmm. I, I think, actually, I'd love to bring Lord of the Rings into this at some Definitely. point. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, for instance, uh, Peter, did you want to... Well, it's... Um, had, I, I think you wanted to talk about Star Wars in particular. Right? It, that doesn't have to be Star Wars. Um, but in terms of, like, with plants and uh, stuff like that, the, the first thing that pops into my mind is technically this is based off of a fantasy thing, but it's not abnormal to see in sci-fi. Like, these... You see, like, weird, weird plants, and, like, sometimes it's just creative design, stuff like that. But one of the things you see is, like, mushroom trees. Ah, yeah. Like, those tr mushrooms literally as tall as trees with huge canopies and uh, the, the the question here is is based on your knowledge like i mean <clears throat> the mushroom i mean the mushrooms we have here on planet earth, earth. are i don't know how tall they get like an inch or something like they're not, they're not that big portobellos oh, get pretty big well right yeah portobellos get a lot bigger but most of them are you know fairly small we don't know yep. what like genetically what what is this what is the circumstance for a like a mushroom tree or fungus well, the size of right, yeah yeah yeah. Size, yeah. You should have your fact checker look up what the world's largest mushroom is. Is it is it's it is quite is, a bit. Sorry, I heard something that it is like a. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's just I I know it's probably quite a bit bigger than a portobello. I just know that that's the first thing that popped in my mind. Uh, the world's yeah. largest <laughs> mushroom is Oregon's monster mushroom. How big is it? One moment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, but but like, so is, is I mean, once we find out how big it is, I guess we'll figure out if it's like the size of a tree or something like okay, that. Okay, so mushrooms in general. So a mushroom is it's the fruiting body of a fungus. Right. Really the fungi are they're more closely related to animals than plants, uh, which was just discovered more recently once we were able to look at their DNA more. They're more closely related to animals, anyway. Huh. Um, so fungi mostly exist as this network of little skinny tubes called hyphae, mm -hmm. and these they might be growing in the ground or on a pile of wood chips, that kind of thing. So right. they're the feeding structure, the main part of the body. The mushroom's a fruiting body, so its job is to disperse spores <laughs> to make... Essentially reproduce. Yeah. 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 So mushrooms, the reason they grow taller is to sort of lift their spore producing structures above the terrain so that oh. um, they can disperse more effectively. Now, spores are really tiny, right? Spores, individual spores are microscopic. Right. It, it looks, you know, a puffball. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the top of spores. It just looks like dust. Yeah. Um, so they don't need to get very tall because a little gust of wind will pick up spores and they essentially become aerosols. I mean, they'll just, they're so small, they'll just kind of float in the atmosphere and they can move a huge distance. Hmm. Um, so that's why mushrooms don't really get that tall on Earth is because <laughs> they, they don't, don't need, need to. to. <laughs> it's expensive. It's, it's metabolically expensive. So a, a, mushroom, a fungus would have to use a lot of resources to make really big mushrooms. Okay. Uh, and it has to outweigh the expense of making a big fruiting structure with the benefit of being able to disperse more. And the really big mushrooms I can think of are the ones that um, grow on tree trunks. So oh, there's one yeah. that grows a lot around here that's called the chicken of the woods is the common name. <laughs> the Latin name is Lataporus sulfurius. Yes. I really, I really love that you had that off the top of your head just now. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> it's... Uh, it's uh, it's a bright yellow and orange mushroom that uh, grows in the the heartwood of older trees. So it's a wood decay fungus. Okay. Uh, but they will their fruiting structures. They don't look like a mushroom. It looks like you know the kind of big. It's like the disc that, that yeah yeah tree. shelf right yeah yeah yeah. It's it's like that, but but a huge mass of them, and they can weigh like. 20 pounds or more wow. in an individual structure. But wow. they, so they have an advantage. They're growing in the middle of the tree. Yeah. I mean, they might be able to fruit, you know, 50 feet off the ground <laughs> just because they're growing in a tree. But yeah. they need to be dispersing higher up because they're 
their preferred habitat, tree trunks, <laughs> is higher up. So, so they have, but so they grow big. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why exactly they grow as huge as they do, but those, those tend to be the really big mushrooms are the. Huh. That's super interesting. Brittle's actually she has the the actual height of the actual size of the that largest mushroom. I saw her point out it pointed to me, but I couldn't read it because I'm too far away. But yes, the outline of the world's largest mushroom, which is the I'm probably saying this wrong, the Armelia astoye, which is popularly known as the honey mushroom, stretches 3.5 yeah. miles, which is 5.6 kilometers across, and then extends an average of three feet into the ground. What the fuck? It covers an area as big as 1,665 football fields, and it kills yeah. trees. Wow. Whoa. Whoa. That's armillaria. Yeah. You, you pronounce it essentially right. Yeah. But that that grows. There are probably armillaria in New York, in the parks, they, and in Wisconsin. Everywhere. Yeah. So they are. Uh, so, yeah, that size is referring to the, the underground part of the mushroom. Oh. The individual, the individual caps on an armillaria are. They're about six inches tall and four inches across. So it's a big mushroom. But you'll see them. Sometimes you'll see they, they, the caps come out in October. So if you're in a park in October and you see like a big ring of these six-inch tall yellow mushrooms, that's an, an armillaria colony. Yeah. Okay. So so what it's saying is like miles wide. That's th- that's that network you were talking about. Like the okay. I was freaking out thinking that there was this like massively like <laughs> one right one, one giant gigantic mushroom monster okay. mushroom that's eating trees <laughs> in our planet. Um. So so wait wait wait. I really I I love that we're on this topic. Um. Sorry. Uh. We were getting some distracting sounds, but. Um, so, so one of my one of my games uh, that I used to play is World of Warcraft. There's a zone in one of those games that has, like we see in a lot of the fantasy movies or in like Avatar, these tree tall bioluminescent mushrooms, and it adds to a really yeah. cool environment. However, it's interesting that you say that the reason the mushrooms don't have to grow so big is because their spores are rather small and they can be easily carried. So as long as they're somewhat off the ground, they can go off just fine. Mm-hmm. However, in this particular biodiverse environment, the the landmass, it's mostly a swamp, and these mushrooms are growing out of a swamp, but they don't grow in the mud and the muck. They have to find a landmass to alight on, <clears throat> and it, it so happens to be a part of the mechanic of this game that the uh, spores are larger because you can, you, one of the quests, I think, is to go around and collecting them. Right. Um, or, you know, if I'm wrong, WoW fans will come after me with, with axes, but whatever. <laughs> um, so, but it's interesting to me that maybe in that kind of like a very obviously atmospherically div- diverse and divergent situation um, where the, where, you know, it needs to find better uh, positions for it to spread and grow. And so it needs to grow taller and have more reach to enable to, in order to get it to a bigger landmass. And because the sports are heavier too, so yeah, I, yeah. I find that as a, actually a really cool feature. Yeah, that's interesting. They, yeah, it seems like they might have, they must have put a little bit of thought into just, it. Just a <laughs> tiny bit of research. I mean, mostly they're just trying to get people to buy their game. But hey, you yeah. never know. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so very cool. Um, Peter, there yeah. was other stuff we, we wanted to talk about, especially, I think, um, the viability of, like, one environment-type planets. Right. right. That, I mean, that was a conversation uh, Dan, Nick, uh, my Nick's brother, my, my other cousin, I had on Facebook at one point. I know it's something that Nick's going to have a lot to weigh in on. Oh, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's huge in Star Wars, where it's like, we're going to go to the blank planet blank, and like the for- the forest moon of Endor, it's all redwoods. We're gonna go to Dagobah. It's all swamp. swamp. <laughs> like it's these ridiculous. Like it's so inaccurate. Like granted, uh, it, like ice planets. I mean, Pluto is literally a freaking ice planet. It's it, yep. it's a ball of. I mean, not pure ice, but it's still frozen. That makes sense. Mars is the. I mean, but Mar- even Mars has ice caps. So we we wanted to talk to you about those single biome planets. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because I mean, the the person who would really be able to answer this would be like a, a planetary physicist. 
because they, yeah. they understand, you know, what, what the factors are that give planets variable climates on different parts of the planet. But within our own solar system, I mean, you can think about Venus has a uniform environment. Oh. I don't think there's a lot of variation on Venus between the poles in terms of yeah. uh, what the climate is. But it is an extremely thick atmosphere. So I think <laughs> I think it's kind of it's conceivable that you could you could have a, a single biome type planet, but it, it is it is very prevalent in Star Wars. Oh, I think, God. and I would add to that that you kind of have sort of there's a dichotomy. There are the the all one thing kind of planets yeah. like Tatooine and Dagobah <laughs> and Hoth, yeah. and then there are the the pretty much just like Earth planets, or <laughs> right. pretty much pretty Boo. pretty much just yeah. like. Pretty much just like California or the Eastern United States kind of planet, <laughs> yeah. where it's kind of like lush and temperate, right? Uh, Weather perfect like always. Like Naboo, yeah, Naboo yeah. And Alderaan, yeah. Where you can roll around in fields 365 days out of the right? year. Yeah, like none of these planets. Like there's never like a well, it's winter right now. You like they never hit that. Like no. granted, it's. it's <laughs> They achieve that diversity in planets, but they don't achieve it within the planet. There's yeah. never like a, we're going to go to the mountains on Naboo. And no, no. <laughs> nope. It's just like the rolling fields. Oh, you want to go skiing? Let's go to Hoth for oh, some skiing. My, my favorite is like the lava planet. And actually, this leads me into the, the other thing. Like there's the lava planet um, of... Uh, Mustafar. Thank you so much. Our resident Star Wars absolute king here. Yeah, that's me. Um, but <laughs> everything is burning. How does this... Pl- how, did it, how do people breathe this atmosphere or even live in it there's there's nothing there apart from just like volcanoes well if if i can add a thing isn't aren't i mean i I guess nick please definitely win but i thought most planets like earth at one point was like a volcanic ball at one point so it's just like the idea behind it with that of it's like it's a new planet that's still very sure volcanic i mean but breathing wise yeah no there would be so much i mean correct me if i'm wrong but there would be a ton of like poisonous gas in that air yeah yeah there also wouldn't be very much oxygen yeah yeah, oxygen would oxygen would be all locked up in uh, combustion products, probably. Oh, if, if it's if it's hot enough to burn the entire time, the oxygen would all just be being used up in combustion. Sure, I that, think that's not something that's not something I would have even thought of. That's that's a really good point. Well, so so my point here is in Mustafar, it's okay because they kind of use it as like a destination for people to hide, and it doesn't seem to support its own life. Oh, yeah. But then take a look at Lord of the Rings, which you had said you were a fan of, and look at let's look at Mordor, where the representation <laughs> of Mordor is. This and, and Tolkien describes it as like a blackened thing where gases issue forth from the earth and it's all rivers of lava and fire. And yet it's got enough somewhere. It's got enough uh, vegetation to support um, a massive army <laughs> of humanoid orcs that what pop out of the ground? Like, how do, what do they eat? Like <laughs> each other, yeah, I guess, is the answer. But then like, how, how, do, how are they sustained? What do they breathe? Um, and and actually, interestingly, I and I don't know the full legendarium of Tolkien, but um, there's there, the one of the games Shadow of Mordor uh, that mm-hmm. came out a few years ago, and the sequel came out recently. Um, specifies there's a different area of, of Mordor called Nern, and the character comments, "Oh, I've never seen so much green in Mordor." And the the other character responds, "This is how the Dark Lord." feeds his army so something like that well there it is it looks like the the, the well, IP was like well we gotta well I mean that was the thing the game had to like kind of retcon what yeah. more and more is like unless Tolkien's legendarium did it otherwise but I mean I mean Nick I mean you're you kind of I just want to make sure Nick gets a chance to weigh in on the yeah, questions yeah, no, you that, that, that's, that's that's my thing what what is the feasibility of this you know can 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 an area like that sustain life <laughs> um well yeah, Mordor, Mordor as, we, as it's depicted in, like, the Lord of the Rings movies and as I understand it from the books, uh, yeah, it would seem like Sauron would probably have to buy most of the food for his orc army. <laughs> import it. And import it. You know, like, think about, think about like, Las Vegas. Like, they don't grow most of their oh, food. That's a good Very point. True. So they, <laughs> they have it all trucked in. <laughs> so maybe Sauron... Sauron just has a good supply chain. You know? <laughs> I was just going to say, I, would, I now want to find the Lord of the Rings IP book story, don't care, of the merchants that are selling, selling to Sauron. Sauron. And like what he offers, them, what does he barter in return? He's like, 
here's some pumice for your baths, <laughs> and I need about eight billion cartloads of of of, of broccoli to you know feed my orcs. Yeah. <laughs> and who does he do this with? It would be nice if we had had a scene where like Faramir threatens to like leave Minas Tirith and go like make a bunch of money as a cruel broker for Sauron. Cruel <laughs> like, broker. Uh, I, I, I know a guy. He made a ton of money doing that. <laughs> <laughs> the orcs need somebody to ship in all that gruel and whatever they eat. Whatever they orcs. eat. <laughs> and it shows them eating a lot of meat. Yeah. But, you know, they, they eat bread. It is it is specified that they eat bread, and the, the Urukai specifically bread. do eat bread. But they complain about it. I mean, in Two Towers, it's specifically, we haven't had nothing but maggoty bread for days, and the one's just like, why can't we have meat? Days. Yeah. Like, the, the, all they want is meat. So clearly, there are farmers raising hundreds of thousands of cattle for these armies that are, you know, hundreds of thousands of troopers, right. and they're selling them to the Dark Lord. Yep. They're it's trafficking just, them, in, trafficking them in through Mordor, which has like declared war on all human races. <laughs> but they still like rely on these like cattle raising farmers to speculation, of course. But uh, yeah, brittle. So that makes that makes the mobilization of Sauron's army even more interesting, right? Like, oh. If they don't even actually grow food in Mordor, like when they're like when they're laying seed. I mean, well, I mean, if even if they grow food in some distant part of Mordor, like if I remember right. The sea of Nern on a little earth map is in the far. Mordor is basically a square. Yeah. In the south corner of the map, Nern is in the southeast corner of the square. Of you Mordor. nailed it. Square. Yep, that's right. <laughs> so, um, uh, even if that is, I mean, they'd have to move it, move it a pretty long distance. And if they're laying seeds to like Minas Tirith, or even that's not that far afield, but still, I mean, the logis- the logistics of holding that siege when they don't you know, have a nearby source of food is kind of interesting. It is. So that's, I think that's a fault of at least how it's depicted in the movie uh, of Lord of the Rings is that, I mean, Minas Tirith, too, is this giant giant city with a oh, huge human yeah. population. It's, it's in the middle of a in the middle of a field against a mountain. Like there's, <laughs> there's, there's nothing around it. It's in the middle standing over this like unpopulated plane <laughs> of, like, of like short grass prairie right. like it looks like it's in it looks like it's in Wyoming yeah it really, it really <laughs> does it's, be- it's beautiful scenery but yeah I, that's a, but it's, it, a fan- it's a fantasy world it is you don't have to worry I mean, yeah. that, that's actually a really good point. But, you know, it's, it is funny because apart from the Shire, I don't think we've ever seen, like, farmland no. anywhere in Middle-earth, which is, I didn't even think about that. That's fascinating. Brit, um, Brittany d- did have something she... There might she... be some, like, half-assed farm fields in Rohan. <laughs> I yeah. guess, yeah, yeah. maybe. But, th- but again, that's short, it's short plains. So I don't know. Uh, Brittles, Brittles, you had something you wanted to say? Uh, yes, I googled what orcs eat. <laughs> this is good. I love it. Brilliant. And, uh, Let's hear it. Tolkien indicates that orcs are always hungry, and they oh. eat manner of flesh, including men and horses. Mm-hmm. So I believe Sauron just keeps them hungry. Yep, like ravenous dogs, right. essentially. Wow. And I've... there's um, <clears throat> cannibalistic traits. So so they when they attack, they eat other. the body. Oh, they eat each other. Yeah, no, well, we've seen that in Two Towers. When oh, we did. one orc kills the other, Orokai, at least, he says, did. looks like meat's back on the menu, boys, and then they tear in. And, yeah, <laughs> they do the whole thing. So the, after after Osgiliath and all those other sieges, they must just go at the fallen victims. Yep. Yeah, that's them. a dark place to go. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even realize. Oh, my God. Mm. Also <laughs> says that the leader of the Mortar Orcs, correct me, because I only read the books. I didn't watch the movies. All right. Grishnaka? Grishnaka? Sure. Sure. Yes. I don't remember, actually. I, I, I've seen it written also, and I would pronounce it that way. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's said in the movies or not. Well, he accuses um, Saruman Orcs of eating orc flesh, which they angrily denied. Oh, interesting. So Saruman has his own Uruks, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he needs to... Okay, all right. I, I see how that, that... So maybe they're not cannibals. Well, I mean, but Uruks are technically not orcs, so it's not technically cannibalism at that point. Ah, oh, so it's still flesh. Yeah. Still flesh. Just right. have like a weird elf-man hybrid. Right. <laughs> 
Well, I do have to say, I did not expect the conversation we're having with the plant geneticist to get into what's cannibalism for an orc or not. But here we go. <laughs> the roots our conversations go. <laughs> oh my gosh, so fun. Yeah. Well, I was thinking. I was thinking about the whole, you know, realistically replicating biodiversity and imagined world right. thing when I was going for a walk this morning, and. Just, a, just that, a normal Saturday morning thought, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, I was thinking about, like, oh, what am I going to talk But I was thinking, you know, the that fantasy fantasy world like Middle Earth have it relatively easy. Yeah. Because we kind of assume that they're taking place in a world, a version of our world or something similar. So it automatically kind of gets populated mm-hmm. with the ecosystems. Right. And creatures we're kind of familiar with. I mean, obviously, they add on some dragons and things that are outside of the realm of real possibility. But, I mean, they especially one of the great things about Lord of the Rings is that, you know, they talk about the different trees, the oaks and the the different types of trees in Fangorn Forest. Right. Like that. So, and Tolkien, like a good English, cares about the trees and mines all the time. Right. Anyway, <laughs> like the good uh, Englishman he is. <laughs> yeah, but but the um, in like Star Wars, when you're creating different planets, yeah, like it is. I mean, just think about the amount of biodiversity. Like where I am in Central Illinois, it's not the most biodiverse place in the world. Right. And just how many how many species live like in my yard? It's dozens. Yeah. Literally dozens. And if you added up species that like occasionally showed up once in a while in my yard, it would be hundreds. And if you had plants, animals, insects, whatever. Right. Um, and so to create that out of whole cloth on a different planet is just, it's an impossible task, yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, massive. No one, no, one, no one could come up with the biodiversity of Earth just out of, out of their imagination. And then replicate so, it per number of planets that yeah. you want to feature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's, mm-hmm. I think that's part of why you, you tend to get these single environment planets. And in Star Wars especially, they'll tend to have like one or two funky animals yeah. that are kind of distinctive. Like uh, Naboo, you have the Gungans. Well, they're mm-hmm. humanoids. But yeah. they have their, their creatures they ride. Yeah. A couple big sea monsters. Yeah. Um, but another reason that I just thought of that there might be so many single environment planets is that people just like seeing the space travel aspect yeah. of space fantasy movies. And so if you have to go to a different planet to get the characters in a different environment, yeah, yeah. it kinda it kinda helps move the move the story it's, along. It's certainly a lot more interesting than like Luke and uh, and Obi Wan going into Mos Eisley saying, "Yeah, we need a guy to fly a shuttle a few miles to the northwest <laughs> because that's where the next scene is going to take place." Rather than like, "No, we need to go, you know, elsewhere." Um, yeah, I I, th- I think that's the thing, and it always serves a story <laughs> but, I mean, purpose. But he right? didn't need it; he had the speeder, and they drove. And they did. They, they did, did drive. They did drive. In... But Tatooine's a desert planet. So. Yeah. <laughs> that I mean, but but I yeah. think you're right. Um, yeah. The the, the spacefaring aspect is really interesting, mm-hmm. and it encourages it, it. It basically encourages its own genre. Right? Well, yeah, and it's you know we're, we're breaking this down with a literal plant geneticist, but at the end of the day, yes, there's storytelling element behind all of this. The right. the image of you know a twenty foot tall mushroom is visually interesting because I mean yeah, our, we see mushrooms like most of us see mushrooms that are no bigger than like six inches, even though. There's a lot more going on there, but visually the storytelling makes it exotic. Right. Um, I'm I'm taking over the conversation right now because we've actually hit the 30 minute mark of our geek out session, which it flew by for for the, this was incredible. So we're actually hitting the next segment. We're hitting uh, the final 10 minutes um, of our show where it's plus 10 XP. Basically, for the next 10 minutes, the three of us here are going to have our chance to try to geek out, pick your brain. It's basically the, you got to geek out, now it's our turn, even though we've all been geeking out this entire time. Yeah, It's just kind of specific things that we wanted to talk about. So, uh, JC, did you have anything specific? Yeah. um, Hey, I had a question for you. Have you ever heard slash played a game called No Man's Sky? Are you you asking me? I am yes, asking yes. you. Yeah. 
Okay, sorry. Um, no, I have never. Okay, um, so I know very little bit about uh, very little about this, but it was a it was a very popular topic for a while. The game came out, I, I think, a year or two ago. Um, essentially, uh, a team of developers created a game where it was procedurally generated planets, and all and it was the 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 scope of the project was massive. They they said that it would take you several hundred years of traveling in this procedurally generated uh, game to encounter another player or something like that. It was like, oh, it, wow. yeah, because everything, just the, the astronomical odds were, you know, were astronomical. Um, <laughs> but, but it also generated each planet's flora and fauna. And that was what was yeah. interesting to me. They they had certain parameters. I'm sure. I, I'm uh, you know from a game design perspective, I'm sure there was some way to achieve like it needs to be able to do this, and it needs to be able to look like that. But all the planets, interestingly enough, were very eco diverse. A lot of them were like dinosaurs tromping through a jungle, but uh, mm -hmm. many times there was an area of that map where you could, where it was, you know, the season changed and there was no vegetation mm -hmm. and the, you know, the, the fauna responded accordingly or changed accordingly. Hmm. Um, and I, I, it's a fascinating concept and it's even more interesting to me that the game tanked. Apparently it didn't deliver on what it was originally promised to do. And there was, it was just not interesting enough. There was not enough for players to do. Interesting. Um, right. So from a geek perspective, I'd love to pick your brain as to what, what you would do in a situation like that. Say you, you know, your expertise was hired by a game development company that was like, you know what, we would pay you lots of money and we want you to be able to tell us like what would make this world interesting as far as uh, flora, et cetera. What would you do to be like, okay, you know what? Yes, that's cool that we can procedurally generate stuff, but like, how can we interact with this in that kind of environment um, that would engage a player? Yeah. Um, well, in my own experience, I mean, like I said before, my favorite part of a lot of the games was, you know, designing your own thing and watching it. Well, and, run around. and if memory serves, you're, you're also a writer and you're also a creative soul. You're not just a scientist. I, I, I would yeah, say, yeah, that, I'll say that pretty definitively. Because most scientists are not creative, well, clearly. When, when my sister's on the show, she'll prove that not every scientist has a creative he has side. A <laughs> Love her to death, but... Fair enough. Uh, so sorry, I interrupted uh, you, Nick. Yeah, no, but... Well, that's all, that's all I really had to say is that, that that's what I would think is interesting. As far as plants go, I mean, I think you could make the coolest and most interesting uh, simulated fantasy flora ever, and that wouldn't, that wouldn't necessarily be what made people interested in Sure, game. sure. <laughs> so, right. You know, most, pe most people aren't that interested in plants. It's just kind of fact. Yeah, yeah spore, spore. spore, sure. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's kind of the ultimate. But that went down a whole different road. Yeah. Where, you know, you can just, because you have such flexibility over the shape of the animals, mm -hmm. you can just make really, you know, we just kind of end up making like the perfect being. So, so I've heard a lot about this, um, but I've never played it. And for our listeners and our, well, not viewers, but our listeners who are tuning in, what 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 is spore like? What's a rundown? So, if memory serves, the breakdown of spore is it's the same creator as The Sims, but taken to the specific level of an alien species. You start the game off literally as a cell, and as you go around eating like literally meat chunks, your cell grows and you get more complex. You can add on to it. Eventually, your little cell-like creature crawls out of the uh, the ocean, and you get to continue to customize and get more complex as you take over or befriend other things. Um, it goes to then like a pre-civilization level, then to a civilization level, then to space travel, and then it becomes like a space trading uh, sort of game. It's it, it's interesting. Um, 
But we spent way too much time just customizing animals yeah. in that game. Clearly. We s- <laughs> I, given your background and what you've told us, I would have never guessed. Brett, do you have yes, something? Yes, I just have a correction there, Peter. So Sorry. After the space stage in the game, you then go into the galactic adventures. According to Wikipedia. So you Sorry. can well you Galactic, can, you can, you galactic Adventures was two parts. You collected <laughs> spice and battled or befriended everybody. Th- those were the two options. If you were right. an herbivore, you befriended. If you were a carnivore, you attacked. That's awesome. It was great, but uh, you also again you had a you had a character simul like creation thing. And <laughs> never gonna forget it. I it was a, I can't remember which of you was the mastermind behind it, but it was called the perfect being. And it was this This was my brother. This is just the epitome of like Dan. It was so wonderful. Please please describe. It kind of looked like a tree, but definitely wasn't. It was brown and lanky and ugly. Its mouths were on its knees, I think. And it was structured in such a way that it looked like it was constantly falling over. It was so funny. The perfect B. That was that was spore though. Yeah. 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 Uh, Brittany, did you have anything you wanted to pick uh, Nick's brain about? I did. Um, as the Harry Potter guru. That's right. And um, in my opinion, the most popular plant in Harry Potter is gillyweed. Mm, well, the, yeah, definitely the most well known. Definitely. Oh yeah. But my question is, and it's not on Pottermore, and it's presumed on um, Harry Potter Wiki that the uh, drink gilly water has gillyweed in it and yeah but it's never defined if you drink it you don't grow the gills or anything so my question to you as a plant expert is do some plants affect the body differently how they're ingested including eating versus drinking that's a good question ah yes yeah that's a good question and and they definitely do. So it's uh, uh, let me try to think of some specific examples. Definitely. Um, usually it's uh, usually it's a matter of degree. So if you have a, a bioactive compound in a plant that's going to affect your body, you know the if you make a tincture of it, like if you extracted it in water, that will generally be a much more direct and heightened effect than if you ate the plant. Because when you eat the plant, the the active compound is, you know, it's in the cells of the plant and there's a lot of other sugars and stuff in there. So that your body might not be able to absorb all of it. Right. Yeah. Or huh. some of, you know, you have to digest it. Yeah. Might not all absorb. But in a tincture or an extract, uh, then, <laughs> then you get the concentrated a concentrated form of the substance you're after. Like, if you want to talk, uh, well, one famous one would be cocaine. So it grows, <laughs> it grows yeah. in the leaves. It's naturally produced compound. It grows in the leaves of a shrub that's native to South America. Yep. The people are native there to the leaves of the mild stimulant. But the cocaine drug we know is extracted through this labor-intensive process, including lime. To yeah. sort of chemically extract the cocaine, and so, so yeah, so the the mode the mode you consume it in, effect, but that, it's usually a quantitative effect rather than totally changing the action. Right, I I find that fascinating. Um, I I have personal experience. I was in Peru, and you can buy a bag of these leaves for about what is a U.S. equivalent of 30 cents. Wow. And they're... they're uh, don't, probably shouldn't do that. Listening. No, well, 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 here's the thing. Over there, you're, you're 100% right. Um, they, they basically roll up the leaves and allow them to dissolve under the gums because it provides a boost of energy. It's very popular with the farmers and the, and the mm-hmm. field workers there. Um, but the border control in Peru uh. is very, very strict on getting on, on these bags passing through because in America, in the States at least, yeah. it's very easy to get um, some of the stuff over the counter that people can use to make, uh, to dilute the right. leaves into homebrewed cocaine. Right. Um, so it became a challenge for our group of idiot freshman oh, university kids Why? to sneak a bag <sighs> out of Peru, and I was the only one successful enough to do it. Oh, yep. are, yeah. are you just admitting to like some huge crime right I, now? I really did, except that there's no evidence because that stuff like died in my dad's workshop where he put it away. 
Well, thank you for that piece of information, JC. So we I, have a criminal on the podcast. We, we um, I really, I, we're, we're almost out of time. I want to make sure we bounce back to, the, to make sure we're back on Britney's thing. Yes. Because it sounded like the, the in this, in the Potter universe, the gillyweed uh, tincture, as Nick described it, is supposed to be like less potent, where in, when in reality, the effects would have been heightened. Correct. Well, presuming that gillyweed, or I'm sorry, that um, gilly water is an extract of gillyweed. Um, right. In which case, Rowling, right, it would be the opposite. If right. you drink gilly, if, if gillyweed unless gives you, you gills, it. unless you diluted it. Right. right. So gilly yeah. water does what? It, I mean, I don't know. ideally, it would turn you into a fish, right? I mean, but like, well, but, that's why gilly weed technically it gives you those features. And if gilly water is partner, uh, right, from, a specified extra. Well, so, so, like, if it's a, basically if it's gilly tea, is what is if we're looking at it like that, then yeah, I feel like the effects would have to be that. that this is interesting. Yeah, you would expect it so that I don't know, you get right. more gills, you turn into a shark, or you turn into a fish, uh, you that, turn that, into a fish or something. That's, that's essentially what I'm saying. What Unless, is what is the Potter gilly water? What is what is gilly water? What is gilly water? Uh, gilly water is a drink that Professor McGonagall has ordered and Ramilda Vane attempted to give herring, yeah, <laughs> with love potion. To go to Slughorn. So it party. sounds like they tried to make it into a tea, but essentially, essentially. it it seems like it's breaking. You know what? Maybe maybe just going on a limb here. Maybe the magical element is not extracted through water. The magic element being the the uh, there it is the guilt. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. that's essentially what I was. I think say. that's what's going on. Yeah, and yeah. I and I think you're right, Nick. Like unless it was diluted, in which case, in this case, it might have magically right. been so. Right. Right. Well, we are out of time. I, re- oh. I we could I mean, we could keep going for another hour or more, clearly, but we do have to wrap it up. Unfortunately, thank you so much for calling, ca- talking with us today, Nick. This has been amazing. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. And if you need uh, you need more advice about plants and uh, Harry Potter, or Star Wars, or anything, yeah, be it. Oh. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll have you back. We'll I'm, be calling. We'll be calling. So anyway, um, I think I leveled up today with the GXP. I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty sure I did. Um, so quickly signing off again. I'm Peter the Geek. I'm GMJC. And I'm Brittles. All right. Thank you guys again for listening, and have a good rest of your day. And that's a wrap. That's it. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to our show. If you liked Geek XP, help us out by becoming a contributor on our Patreon. We have bonus content, raffles, and more at patreon.com slash yourgeekxp. Geek XP is recorded live at Face Off Unlimited headquarters in Astoria, Queens, and was edited by Peter Hargard. Executive producers are Joe Tex, Jay Painter, and Eric Robinson. FLU Studios is a property of Face Off Unlimited, LLC. I'm Peter Hargarden, the senior producer of podcasts here, and on behalf of everyone who worked on the show, we'd like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to catch all of our other podcasts here on the FOU Studios Podcast Network. To connect with the geeks, follow us at YourGeekXP on Facebook and Twitter. To learn more about FOU, connect with us via social media at FOU Studios and visit us at FOUStudios.com. Boom!